Thanks, Pastor Phil. If you'd like to get your Bible out or open your Bible app or whatever technology you're using this morning. Um, and if you'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, it's probably fairly obvious starting a talk in Hebrews chapter 11 that it's going to be a talk about faith. But I've got to say, how unfair is it that I have to stand up here and give a talk after that testimony? <laughs> it's hard to compete with with that sort of a testimony. Not that it's a competition. Um, but, yeah. So, a few months ago, I was, I was up here leading communion. And as we do, after communion, we operated the gifts. And there was a gift that came out that had a particular phrase in it that lodged in my brain. And, it's, it's, and I... It, just got stuck in there and, and after the meeting I felt I need to write this down and I jotted it down in the note-taking app in my phone and it's been sitting there for a few months and it keeps rattling around in my head. And in this, this particular gift, the Lord said that he, he wants us to have a strong faith. And he went on to say, not a frail faith that hopes rather than expects what we pray for. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about faith, hope and expectation. And that, that phrase that not to have a frail faith that hopes rather than expects, um, it really, obviously, it's stuck in my head and it's a really a great, great phrase from the Lord. And so I wanted to talk about, look at, at faith, but what exactly is faith? Why, why is it so important? Why do we need it? Um, look at a few, couple of examples of, of um, people from the Old Testament who are um, mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11 as, as people that showed a great deal of faith. And then to have a look at you know, hope and expectation and why is expectation better than hope? What's wrong with hope? Hope is a good positive word. It's used a lot in the scriptures. But expectation is better. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're going to talk about faith, you have to include this scripture. So we'll start in verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And as a scripture that we've read many, many times, we can probably quote it verbatim. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to say that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen? Um, I think the Amplified Bible brings it out really well. It says, now faith is the assurance, the title deed or the confirmation of things that are hoped for or divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. And so faith is something that we all have, and we have it in a lot of different things. A lot of us, we have faith that the sun will rise tomorrow, and we go about our life today expecting that to happen, and we there's no, no one really has any doubt about whether the sun is going to rise tomorrow. You know, we even expect that you can look up, you know, exactly when it will happen. And, you know, tomorrow morning it will happen. But that's faith in something that's completely natural. And we have that faith because it has happened over and over and over again. And so we have this expectation, which is really a faith, that it's going to happen again. But we have no, we haven't seen the sunrise tomorrow. We don't know that it actually will. It might not. You know, the world might have ended by then. You know, Vladimir Putin with his cronies carrying around the nuclear code suitcases wherever he goes 
might have flipped out and pressed some buttons and we're all gone. Or, you know, Israel might have decided that it really wants to get rid of Hamas and fires some nukes down into Gaza and everything blows to smithereens. We don't actually know what's going to happen tomorrow. But because we have, we have that faith that it will. And God wants us to have the same level of faith in the promises that he's given us in his words. He wants us to have a conviction that is completely assured that when he says, I'm going to heal you, or I'm going to bless you, that that is exactly what's going to happen. And so why, why do we need faith? Why can't we just go through our walk in the Lord just following a set of instructions and doing as we're told? Because you don't need faith to do as you're told. If I tell my kids to empty the dishwasher, they complain about it, and then I tell them, get on with it, and then they do it. And so we achieve the the result at the end. There's no faith involved. There's just a bit of arguing and, you know, eventually someone doing as they're told. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of things that the Lord has told us to do in the Scriptures, and we could just go, all right, I'll just do them, and we just follow a set of rules. But that's not what God wants from us. He doesn't want us to just follow a set of rules. He wants us to walk by faith. So verse 6 here in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So the first thing of why we need faith, because having faith pleases God. God isn't pleased by us just following a set of instructions and doing it because we have to. If you look at the Old Testament, there was 623 laws, statutes and ordinances that the children of Israel were told, this is what you have to do. And the scriptures are very clear that God got no joy in people actually just following those rules like a bunch of robots. And if you look through the Old Testament, it's clear that God wanted people to have faith even back then, even under the law, what he was actually looking for was faith, not blind obedience to a set of instructions. Um, Let's go to Matthew chapter 21 for another scripture of of why, why we need faith, why we need this confidence and assurance in the God that we, that we follow. So Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 18, i read. So this is talking about Jesus here. It says, Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So, one, we need faith in order to please God. And two, we need faith in order to see our prayers answered. If we, as, as Jesus said here, if, if we have faith, we can say to a fig tree, wither up and die, and it'll wither up and die. If we have faith, we can say to a mountain, you know, get off into the sea. 
and it'll happen. Not that those are particularly useful things to be able to do in your life a lot of the time, but faith is that powerful that you know if we ask things in, that are according to God's will, as, as Kate said in her testimony, God doesn't always give us what we want, but he gives us what's right for us. He gives us what's good for us, like any good parent. They don't just feed their children lollies all day long because the kids want lollies. They give them vegetables shaped like lollies. So they'll eat them anyway. And so, you know, if we have faith, we can achieve things through the Spirit. We can see miracles. We can see God's power manifest in our life. And we'll jump over to Luke chapter 18 because there's a couple of different sides to faith in terms of you've got this faith that's about casting mountains into the sea, withering up fig trees, you know, seeing amazing miracles happen. Which is, which is amazing and something that we all want to see in our walk in the Lord. But Luke 18 here, Jesus talks about a different aspect of faith. So Luke 18, we'll start in verse 1. And it says, He spoke a parable unto them to this end, the men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, And she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge says, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. And it's a really interesting end to this parable. So Jesus talks about, you know, this the need to to ask and ask and ask and nag and nag and nag. And you know, it gives an example of the you know the unjust judge and the widow who kept coming to him and coming and coming to him and eventually wore him down and he went, Okay, I'll give you what you want. And he makes the point of saying that you no, know, that was an unjust judge. God is not like that. God is, wants to give us good things. But he wants us to keep asking and asking and asking. And then he goes on to say, will I find faith on the earth when I return? So when Jesus returns, he's not looking so much for the faith that cast a mountain into the sea or the faith that withered up a fig tree. He's looking for the faith that saw somebody on their knees today, tomorrow, the next day, asking and asking and asking for their prayers to be answered. There's two, there's, there's two different, very different aspects to faith in that regard. That, you know, I, I think about my, you know, what is it, 30, 34 years that I've been spirit-filled and the number of people who I've seen who have come along to the fellowship, that gotten spirit-filled, they've seen an amazing miracles. They've seen... You know, I think of, you know, people who have seen people healed of of MS, people healed of cancer, people who've been miraculously protected in amazing situations, and yet they're no longer walking with the Lord. They had that grain of mustard seed to cast a mountain into the sea, but they didn't have the faith to be the widow coming at the judge day after day after day after day. 
And that's the faith that the Lord is looking for when he returns, is this faith of, well, God said that he would give me this answer, so I'm going to ask today, and if I don't have it tomorrow, I'm going to ask tomorrow. And if I don't have it tomorrow, I'm going to ask the next day. And I'm going to keep doing that day in, day out until the Lord returns. That's the faith that God is looking for when he returns. And if we have that faith, that's what will see us raised to meet him in the air. So there's those two aspects. We have, there's faith is key to having our prayers answered, but it's also key to pleasing God in that way that we continually come to him every day of our lives. As, uh, as Kate put so well in her testimony, you, know, you see amazing miracles. Sometimes you don't see things. You don't get the thing that you pray for. You don't get that healing. You don't get that situation resolved in the way you think it should have done. But as long as you're there every day, all right, I'm going to follow the Lord, I'm going to have some prayer, I'm going to keep my faith strong. That's what really matters. Um, I should have told you to keep a, a bookmark in there. We'll duck back to Hebrews chapter 11. Because Hebrews chapter 11 um, goes through lots of examples of, of people from the Old Testament who, who demonstrated great faith. So probably just keep your finger or a bookmark or something in Hebrews chapter 11 now. So here in Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about, talks about Abel, it talks about um, Abraham, talks about all sorts of people. I wanted to pick on a couple of them. So in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. So I want to talk about Noah for a little bit. We all know the story of, of Noah, who built an ark, and there was a flood, and his, you know, he and his family and all the animals that he'd ushered into the ark were saved from that flood. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 6, where the story actually happens. So Genesis chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 9. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And, Noah, and God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Three rooms shall thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, if I was Noah in this situation, my first response would have been, what's an ark? No one around me owns an ark. No, Bob next door, he's just got a donkey. What's an ark? No one had ever built an ark. No one ever had use for an ark. No one knew what it was. And, you know, we go, if you can go on, you can read all the instructions that God gave Noah about what the ark, how big it needed to be and how long and wide and tall and how many rooms and all that sort of stuff. And Noah would have, it would have been 
really hard for him to comprehend what he was actually building and what was the point of it. Because, again, no one had ever... No, there, were, there wasn't, you know, an arc shop down the road where he could go, oh, yeah, that, what, that's what it's going to look like. He didn't get delivered, you know, a, a pamphlet with a set of plans and some artist impression of what it would look like to, to the, so he could know when he got to the end if he'd built it correctly. He just had these instructions from God. And that's what it's like a lot of the time with our life walking in the Lord. We don't see the end picture. We don't know how this is all supposed to work out and what it's supposed to look like in the end. But we've just been given steps along the way that God's asked us to do. And we need to do those in faith, knowing that God has an overall plan. We don't actually understand what it looks like so much. But the plan is going to be good. Um, We'll jump down to verse 17 as the story goes on. And behold, this is God speaking, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. And again, my response, if I was Adam, would just have been, oh, it's a flood. Never seen one of them. Never, I've no idea what that is. Because there'd never been a flood before. And it's very similar to us when we look at the Lord's return. And I find this all the time when I look at scriptures about the Lord's return and it describes how, you know, the Lord will come in the sky and every eye will see him. The natural response from my natural brain is, that can't really happen. It doesn't make sense. There's no context for me to go, oh, yeah, that's going to be like this. Because I've never seen anything like that. None of us have. No person living on this earth or ever having lived on this earth has seen anything that they can put in context what the Lord's return is going to be like. And yet we've been asked to prepare for it, just as Noah was asked to prepare for a flood when he had no idea what a flood would be. And if, you, if we skip back a couple of scripture, a couple of chapters to so Genesis chapter 2, just to give you some context of how foreign a concept a flood would have been to Adam, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, It says, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So, We've got a description here that it didn't rain on the earth. A mist went up from the earth and that watered everything. And obviously this is, you know, several hundred years before. There's quite a few generations from Adam before you get through to Noah. But if we make the assumption that that was still the case in Noah's time, not only had he never seen a flood, he'd never seen rain. So how possibly could he have understood what a flood was going to look like? Because all he knew was that you know, each night there was a mist that came up from the earth and in the morning everything was wet and everything stayed green and lush and, and that was great. You know, in the same way for us, the Lord's return and how things are going to change after the Lord's return is so far removed from the day-to-day lives that we live. It's very difficult for our natural minds to comprehend it or to... It's, well, it's impossible for our natural minds to comprehend it. So we... If you're anything like me, the only thing your natural mind is capable of doing is doubting whether it's ever actually going to happen because it can't go, oh, yep, I get that, because it doesn't, and it can't. 
And that's why faith is so important. That's why Noah is mentioned here as such a great man of faith. Because he prepared for an event that he had no comprehension of what it was going to be like. By building an ark that he didn't really know what it was going to supposed to look like in the end. He just had instructions of do this and do that and make it this long and that high. And But day in, day out, he went about doing that. And if you look through the timing in the scriptures, it was about 120 years that it took Noah to build the ark. Surrounded by people who would have been laughing at him the whole time. Going, you know, you say there's going to be a flood. It doesn't even rain here, mate. You're an idiot. You know, the same response we get from people when we tell them about preparing for the Lord's return and they say, oh, you Christians have been saying that for 2,000 years. You're a bunch of idiots. But we keep building the ark ready for the flood. We keep building the fellowship, preaching the gospel, ready for the Lord's return because through the Spirit we have the faith that these things are going to come to pass. Um, let's go to Joshua chapter 2. One of the other people mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, is Rahab. She doesn't get any details given about her. She's tacked on at the end where it talks about, you know, that, that the, the writer didn't have enough time to go through all these other people, Japheth and Rahab and Gideon. So I wanted to pick out Rahab. If I can get to Joshua. It's after Exodus. Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. So again, I'm sure we're all pretty familiar with the story of Rahab, but we'll go through it anyway. Um, We'll start in verse 1, Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all of the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, which I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whether the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. So I don't know where they went. They probably went that way. Go that way. Um, Verse 6, it says, But she brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords, and as soon as they were pursued after them they were gone, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said unto them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when we came out of Egypt. And what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore, I pray you, 
Swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token, and that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if you utter not this our business. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a cord through the window for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterwards may you go your way. And the maid said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath which thou hast made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all the father's household home unto thee. And it shall be that whosoever goes out of the doors of thy house unto the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. And whosoever shall be with thee in the house, his blood shall be upon our head, if any hand be upon him. And if thou wilt utter this our business, then we will be quit of thine oath, which thou hast made us to swear. And she said, According unto your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet line in the window. So look, reading there. But essentially Rahab was in a position here where she had to make a choice. She could either be loyal to where she came from, loyal to Jericho, loyal to a place that was full of sin, essentially. Because if you look at the history of Jericho, Jericho is one of the oldest towns, oldest cities on the face of the earth. It's one of the places that's been populated by people for, I think it's about 9,000 years that people have lived there. It's also one of the lowest cities or dwelling places on the face of the earth. It's right near the Red Sea, which is one of the lowest places on land on the planet. And so there's all this symbolism of this, you know, and it was a place that was, you know, the the religions that were practiced there were all about, you know, animal sacrifices and immorality and um, all this sort of stuff. And, and it was, a you know, an example, if you like, of the world as it is now. You know, the longer human beings live in a place, the worse and worse it gets. And, and humanity just gets worse and worse over time and, and more and further away from where God wants them to be. And, and so Rahab had come from this place. She was a part of it all. But she saw that there was a choice to make. She could either be loyal to the place where she was, she could give up these spies and you know, have them executed, or she could betray where she came from and be loyal to the Israelites, a people that she hadn't met, but she'd heard about what their God could do. And in essence, we've all had that same position, been in that same position, where we've had to make a choice between being a part of the world and being loyal to the world, or betraying that and choosing God instead. And again, like Kate said in her testimony, once you're spirit-filled, you know that you don't fit there anymore. You know that, you know, there is nowhere in this world that feels like home because it's not here anymore. And that was where Rahab obviously saw that, well, I want to be with the Israelites. I want to be with a people that have a God that, you know, opens up the Red Sea, that 
that wins these battles, that does these amazing things for them. So I'm going to betray my friends out there. You know, I'm going to betray my boss. I'm going to betray all these other people, and I'm going to be loyal to these Israelites who are coming across the the, the Jordan to to destroy things. And you know, obviously there was there was a, a bargain made here that you know she was told that if you stay in your house and if you bring in your family and they stay in your house, then they will be saved when we come in. And there's this great destruction. So we'll skip up to ver- to chapter six, which is when the Israelites obviously had crossed the Jordan and had come in. So this was no some time later. It wasn't the next day. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked into it in depth exactly what the time frame was, but let's say it was you know a few weeks later, maybe a month, two months. So some time had gone past. Rahab, you know, wouldn't have gotten any you know text messages from the spies reassuring her that the plan's still in place. It's like she she made this bargain and she was like, well, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to believe what they said to me. I've got to have faith in what I've been promised here. That if I stay in my house, then I'll be safe. So Joshua chapter 6, verse 22. Said, but Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she has, and you swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in, brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had, and they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and iron they put into the treasury of the Lord's house of the Lord. So Rahab kept her side of the bargain. And not only did she stay in her house, but she was able to to get across to, as it says here, her father, her mother, her brethren, and all that she had. She was able to get across to her family the importance of staying in the house. Now, think about... The scenario here. So you've got the children of Israel, they're marching around the city of Jericho for seven days. On the last day, they march around seven times, they blow the trumpets, and the walls start falling down of the city. Now, Rahab's house is in the wall. She looks her head out the window, the wall's crumbling this way, it's crumbling that way. The natural response would be, I've got to get out of here. My house is going to be the next thing that crumbles because I'm in this wall that is being destroyed. So she, again, she had a choice to make. Do I go with what my natural senses are telling me and that I need to get out of here because I'm, you know, the roof's going to cave in, we're all going to die? Or do I believe the promise that was made to me that if I stay here, I'll be safe? And clearly she made the choice to believe to have faith in the promise that she was given, that by staying in her house, she would be safe. And she was. Her house was still intact. It would have been an amazing thing to see that around this entire city, the entire wall would crumble to fallen down, and then just this one little spot is left standing, which is Rahab's house with a red cord hanging out of the window. It would have been incredible thing to see and you know I'm sure Rahab and her family were incredibly relieved when those two spies came and knocked on her front door and went come out now it's all done you're safe and it's like that a lot of the time when we put our faith in God's promises a lot of the time it's terrifying holding on to God's promises when everything else is crumbling around you it's it's you know and the our natural mind is saying you know 
you're being silly holding on to this promise. But if we have faith, if we have that, you know, that conviction of the reality of the things that we haven't seen yet, if we have that absolute assurance that God's promises are going to be true, then we'll stay where we are. We'll stay within the promise that God has given us. Um, ooh, I'm running out of time quickly. Quickly, we'll go one more person from Hebrews. So Hebrews, yeah, we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 11. I did tell you to keep a bookmark there and I haven't been back since, so I'd better make it worthwhile. Hebrews chapter 11 just one more verse here, just one, one person that I wanted to, one other person I wanted to look at. Verse 5, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. And Enoch is a really interesting inclusion in this list of you know, great people of faith from the Old Testament. Because it starts off talking about Abel, who, you know, prepared a sacrifice that was right by the Lord. He did all these things right. It talks about Noah, who built an ark, did an amazing thing in building the ark and saving people through the flood. It talks about Abraham. You know how Abraham you know, uprooted himself and his family from where he lived at God's instruction and went to live somewhere else. And you know, he created this, you know, the amazing, was the start of the nation of Israel. You know, we hear about Sarah, um, who you know had a baby when she was almost a hundred years old. All these amazing things. But what did Enoch do? We we'll go to Genesis chapter five, because Enoch is a character in the Old Testament who gets all of about three verses written about him. He he never, you know, led an army into battle. He never raised anybody from the dead. He he, he didn't do anything of those big mountain moving into the sea, cursing a fig tree type big things. So Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. It says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's the extent of what we hear about Enoch in the scriptures. Enoch was a man who lived for 365 years, and for 365 years, every day he walked with God. And God said, I'm pretty impressed with you, Enoch. You can come and be with me. And so when it says that Enoch, that in verse 24, when it says that he was not, that means that he didn't die. There's no grave where Enoch was buried. God took him up into heaven. That was it. And so Enoch, he didn't necessarily have the faith to, you know, stay in his house while the walls of Jericho were crumbling around him or build an ark when there was this flood was coming and he didn't know what a flood looked like. But he had the faith to, for 365 years, 365 days of each of those years, walk with God and do what God wanted him to do. And he was the Old Testament equivalent of that widow from the parable who went at the judge every day saying, "I I want my answer, I want my answer. And Enoch was rewarded by that by being taken of the Lord and is, you know, waiting 
for us to catch up with him at the resurrection. And so if we talk about where I started in this talk of, you know, a hope, we don't want to have a frail faith that hopes rather than expects, you know. We've seen people here who had this expectation that they'd been given promises, they'd been given instructions, and if they followed them, there was going to be an amazing result at the end, and there was. And we have Enoch who was, you know, knew that if he followed God every day of his life, then there would be something good at the end. And there was something amazing at the end, was that he didn't die, he was raised up into heaven. And that's essentially what we're looking for as well. We want to be Enoch. We want to be, but we also want to be Rahab and Noah. We want to have that faith that sees amazing miracles happen because of the testimony that that presents to others. But we don't want to be that at the expense of being an Enoch. We don't want to have, see these amazing miracles and then get bored of coming to God every day and, and walk away like so many people do. Um, we'll duck back to... Where am I going to finish? Let's go Mark chapter 9. We'll finish up in Mark chapter 9. So, so how do we make sure that we have a faith that expects rather than hopes for answers? And what's wrong with hope? Well, hope is a natural response. You know, when we see God's promises written in the word, our natural response from our natural mind is to say, well, that sounds really good. I hope that happens to me. But we want to get from, from hope to expectation. And expectation is what comes from faith and faith from the spirit. And here in Mark chapter 9, there's a, a really good example here, here in verse 17. It says, and one of the multitudes answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he takes him, he tears him, and he foams and gnashes, and his teeth and pines away. And I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. You know, I brought my mountain to them, and they couldn't move it. My fig trees still covered in leaves. They didn't have enough faith. And he answered them, that's Jesus, and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground, and he wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. He's had it since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. If you've got faith, anything can be done. And straight away the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter him no more. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him as he was one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the father of this boy, he kind of got it. He, he heard God's promises and he said, well, I believe that, but I've also got unbelief. And that's where we stand today. We've got the spirit that gives us faith, that gives us the expectation that God's promises will be revealed. 
and we've got this the flesh that we still contend with that says, well, that sounds a bit too far-fetched. I don't know if that's going to happen. And so we have these two warring factions within us. You know, Romans chapter 8 puts it beautifully where it says that the carnal mind is enmity against God and it's not subject to the law of God and neither can be. So we cannot believe the promises that God has given us in our word with our natural mind. It doesn't matter if you just sit there and you read them over and over again for months at a time. Your natural mind will still have unbelief, which is why faith is a gift of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, one of the gifts of the Spirit that's listed there is faith. Because God said you need to believe the promises that I've given you, but also know that you can't do that. So that's why I've given you faith through the Spirit, so that the Spirit will do the believing for you. The the Spirit will give you the expectation of having your prayers answered. The natural mind will still be there hoping that it's going to happen. But if we have the Spirit built up, then the expectation and the faith from the Spirit can override the unbelief and the cross-your-fingers hoping of the flesh so that we get to that point of having a strong faith that expects and doesn't just hope anymore. Um, In this same chapter, um, verse 28, after this happened, and it says, And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? What was wrong? What what did we do wrong that we tried to cast out this, this devil and it didn't work? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And the the fasting in this has been added in. The original um, um, manuscripts here just say prayer. And Jesus' response is, well, you need to pray more. The spirit needs to be stronger. There's no tricks to it. There's no, no... special, you know, prayer to be said or, you know, if you come to a particular person who's in the prayer line, you're going to get your prayer answered because the other person's not quite so good. There's no tricks to it. It is simply a matter of prayer because faith comes from the Spirit. And so if you've got a need that you haven't received an answer to yet, the solution is more prayer. And if tomorrow you haven't got that answer yet, the solution is still the same, more prayer. And if a year from now you're still asking for the same thing, well, the solution is still the same, more prayer. It's, that, it's, it's frustratingly simple at times that we want there to be some trick that we can go, okay, well, I just do this, then I'll get my prayer answered tomorrow. No. The, the, the trick is just keep praying, just keep building up the Spirit until the faith of the Spirit is stronger than the unbelief of the flesh. And that's when we get our answers. And I'll leave it there.